it appears they also tweeted if you find a squirter marry her yeah is that what yeah, what is did. happening here so all this prompts I'm glad you asked all this prompts the question for me is radio shack the next berkshire hathaway <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Morning, morning. What's up, Dougals? One half done. One half is done. We've had, uh, according to my uh, research, 124 trading days in 2022. That's great. It felt like 966. <laughs> so what, whatever that is, whatever that is, felt like it. Really, yeah, really uh, rough week for some. We're gonna get to that in a second. First, I want to tie up a loose end from uh, I think this is two weeks back. Okay. You ask, what would you do for a Klondike bar? And I said, not much. Yeah, according to CNN Business, um, a Klondike bar is turning 100 years old this year, and. In 1922, a Klondike bar cost $0.10. Now today, assuming you buy a six-pack, they cost around $0.67. You know what's interesting about this? Tell me more. It's a healthy, healthy discount if you adjust for inflation. $0.10 in 1922 is the equivalent of about $1.75. So Dougal's, basically, no one wants Klondike bars. They've discounted their real cost by almost two thirds. So you're saying 10 cents is $1.75 today and they're charging what, 67 cents? Yeah. Whew. I mean, according to the crack analyst at CNN Business, I don't want to <laughs> take credit for some intern making it. That's what it says. Oh, man. <laughs> I have so, many com- so much commentary about that statement by itself. But <laughs> appreciate you tying up that loose end. Appreciate that. <laughs> All right, before we hop in, we love that listener mail. Uh, if you have questions, thoughts, et cetera, about the markets, about commentary that we have, please send that to skippydougals at gmail.com. We love listener mail, skippydougals at gmail.com or on Twitter at skippydougals. Either way, hit us up. We love it. And as always, please rate and review the podcast. It helps people on the services that you use to find us. If you, if you rate us, or if you leave a review, even better. So love that. Thank you for tying up that loose end, Skippy. Yeah, let's uh, let's have some fun. You mentioned that uh, Q2 is over. We're 124 days into the trading cycle. This stuff is pointless knowledge, but it's interesting nonetheless. So if you go back to 1928 and look at performance through the first half of the year, any guesses on where this falls in terms of the worst performing first half of the year in the last almost 100 years? I'd say seven. Number four. All right. So the worst year ever, worst half year, just so I'm crystal clear on that, was 1932, where we were down 44.5%. 1962 and 1940 uh, were worse than 2022, but we went down 20.6%, fourth worst performing First half of the year ever. Now, you know what's incredibly interesting about this, though, Dougals? Uh, I, I know one thing that I was going to state, but you uh, you probably have something different in mind. You want to hit yours and then I'll go back to mine? 
in the previous five worst performing first half of the years, the ending half of the year, the last two quarters, Q3 and Q4, have turned positive. In some cases, as much as 53% positive. So there's no guarantees that the doom and gloom will continue. Never guarantee about anything. I don't know. It makes sense. And we, we've, we've discussed some uh, projections are stupid, right? But we, we've discussed some conjectures, I'll say, about why that could be potentially this year. But interesting to see that historically. I was going to say a couple other things, about mainly about the other years. Because in, you said 1932, 1962, 1940. Mm-hmm. So 1932 was in the Great Depression. 1940 was in World War II. 1962 is like, I don't know. It, it, there, there was nothing actually happening then. It was just some, um, there was like pessimism around what was going to happen in the presidential election and Vietnam, you know, started kind of happening and whatnot, but there wasn't anything going on. But two of those years were you, under very understandable as to why uh, we were down that far. Uh, 2022, there's a lot going on, but we're not in a world war yet. And we're not in a Great Depression yet, but both are threatening. Question well, you know, I'm throwing that the out parallel, you know, that, that's interesting. You're the history buff here. The parallel that people throw out with today, um, largely c- because of inflation, is the 70s. Well, the fifth worst performing first half of the year is 1970, down 20.2%. In that case, it rebounded second half of the year and went up 25.3%. Again, you can't make any parallels, but the way the human brain works, it's natural to try and find correlation here. I just was surprised to see, on average, how positive the the second half of the year has been when you perform this poorly first half of the year. I mean, you know me, I'd go back to just some mean reversion. Even if this is a downtrend that lasts three years, I think it's natural for the human brain to anchor to say, oh, well, but the stock, stock market used to be worth X. So it really can't be worth 20% less than X because I've seen it worth X for the last 18 months. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, that's exactly right. It is interesting with the, the positive trends. And for those other ones, even though there was a positive trend in the second half of the year, the years ended negatively still. Right? Uh, it, in all except for uh, 1970. Yeah. 70 yeah. ended flat. But yeah, the, the previous ones ended down between, I'm just looking at the top seven here, between 23% down and 5% down. It's, it's such an unprecedented time. We keep saying that, so I won't, I won't linger on it, but it's interesting. I'm going to, this is a complete non sequitur. Um, and okay. we can hit on this a little bit more later. <laughs> but speaking of first half, second half, there's this Radio Shack tweet. <laughs> that came out actually maybe i'll touch on it now and you can you can pull us back to reality yeah, yeah, so yeah. i'm just gonna full dip into the fishbowl uh and throw out this radio shack tweet and then throw out why i i find it to be interesting and we can do what we will or just throw it in the trash so here's a tweet taking the second half of an edible after feeling nothing from the first half is always a bad idea this chocolate bar got me out here fighting for my life what <laughs> Somehow I missed this. What? <laughs> Can you repeat that, please? Yes. So we were just talking about first half, second halves, right, of market performance. <laughs> and I thought this tweet 
from Radio Shack from just a couple days ago. It was interesting. Here's a tweet again. Taking the second half of an edible after feeling nothing from the first half is always a bad idea. The cho- This chocolate bar got me out here fighting for my life. That is a tweet from Radio Shack. Just, just to be clear, in case if I just threw out that tweet and you had to guess who that tweet was from, not okay. Radio Shack would be would be your guess. Uh, okay. Now I'm, I'm going through Radio Shack's Twitter. I think this is appropriate to say on the show, but it appears they also tweeted, if you find a squirter, marry her. Yeah. Is that what, yeah, what is happening here? So all this prompts, I'm glad you asked. All this prompts the question for me, is Radio Shack the next Berkshire Hathaway? <laughs> Here's why I ask. <laughs> it's a joke, by the way, but I ask it not because of those tweets, because Warren nor Charlie are tweeting. I don't think I'm pre- pretty sure they still print out their emails. But the reason I ask is because for those that are not familiar with Berkshire Hathaway's history, Berkshire Hathaway was a textile manufacturing company that then Warren Buffett bought back in the 60s, I think, uh, maybe maybe early 70s, something like that, 60s, 70s. And then Berkshire Hathaway started buying other businesses. So it became this conglomerate, right? Investment company, but it was a textile manufacturing company. I say that because Radio Shack, about a year ago, we actually got some listener mail about how Radio Shack was getting into crypto. And now Radio Shack is just basically full on a crypto slash e-commerce company. And so I'm saying, did Radio Shack go from a retail organization to now a crypto investment company? And maybe in 50, 70 years, we're going to be we're going to be talking about how Radio Shack is the most successful investment company of all time. We're not. <laughs> we're really not. But um, I, I just think I think it's interesting. And rate this is Radio Shack people. Maybe some haven't even heard of the company because it went bankrupt a few years ago, but Radio Shack was founded in the 1920s to provide ham radio equipment, right? That, that was the purpose of the company. It went bankrupt in 2015. It, uh, it's gone bankrupt a couple times in its history. So like Radio Shack has just never worked out. But when it went bankrupt in 2015 is kind of what led to this whole debacle because in 2015, the assets of Radio Shack, so globally started getting spread out amongst a bunch of companies but it's U.S. assets got bought by a company that is partially owned by, gosh, I wish I could remember the name right now. Ty Lopez or something like that is the name of this guy who is a... It is Ty Lopez, yeah. Is it, who is a... Uh, he's a, like an investment influencer. He's one of those people that we'd be talking about that um, is on like TikTok, right? Or, or other social media, like putting out investment advice. That is who partially yeah. owns Radio Shack. And this is why Radio Shack, the ham radio operator where I used to pick up coaxial cable when I was a very cool 15-year-old, is now tweeting about edibles and chocolate bars saving their lives or threatening their lives. Some of the Radio Shack Twitter, I can't even mention on the show. Yeah. This is, this is a very interesting turn of events. The whole Radio Shack thing just has got me, I don't know, thrown for a loop because it's ridiculous. But regardless of whether or not, and it's still up in the air, Radio Shack does become Berkshire Hathaway. Again, still up in the air. (laughs) Whether or not that does happen, I still think this tweet fits with that last conversation you were having about first halves and second halves. First half, second half. No, you're so right. Right? Let's, uh, uh, let me pull you back because (laughs) I haven't finished finished with my quiz. Uh, Let's talk S&P 500, first half performance, worst performing stocks. 
throw throw out some guesses. I got to first know what's in the S and P five hundred <laughs> squarely, <laughs> but uh, uh, um, I think I saw somewhere that Netflix is the worst. Netflix is the worst, down seventy percent. I'm guessing Meta's up there somewhere. Do you got some other names? Uh, Carnival Corp, Bed Bath and Beyond, PayPal, and Etsy, all in mm-hmm. all in that bottom ten, all down between fifty and seventy percent. Now, top performers, do you just want me to spill the beans or you got the number it's, one is going to make you so mad? It's all the oil companies. <laughs> number one, Occidental Petroleum Corp. We actually had a conversation on the show where I told you not to buy it. Effectively. <laughs> so great. And there we go. There we go. Let me pull. I think you sent this over. Hold on, let me pull it up. I mean, Occidental is up 104 percent. Shout out to our friend Jeff at Occidental, yeah. by the way. Exxon's up there. Valero, it's, I mean, the top 20 names here are like 80% oil and gas. Yeah. Mm. Oh, this is an interesting list. What? So yeah, Netflix, Etsy, Align, PayPal, Bath and Body Works. What gets me, what's interesting to me is, uh, so I would expect because of this types of stuff that I own to own something that's in the worst performing. I don't. So great, although some of my stocks aren't doing all that well anyway. But uh, but what is interesting when I look at this worst performing list is I have owned a number of these. Yeah, NVIDIA is on there. Yeah, NVIDIA I sold at the beginning of this year. Netflix I sold, was that the beginning of last year or two years ago? Something like that. Uh, Illumina um, I've owned and sold. Royal Caribbean and Carnival I bought at the, uh, the bottom in 2020 and sold near immediately. Um, these are like some of my old, I feel like they're like, I don't know, foster kids or something. I didn't never had foster kid, but like that I like have yeah. had at some point. So like, I still feel a connection to these, these children of mine I, and they're getting I, hurt. I totally understand. Hold on. I got the intern working on some quick research for me. I think I may own one of the bottom 10. Give me a second. You don't know. <laughs> uh, oh, nope. No, I, I just, you know, I purchased some more Kohl's yesterday. Their acquisition fell through. And yesterday they were down 20% because of that. So I thought that might push them into the the worst performing uh, here, Dougals, but we didn't quite make it. We didn't, we, we didn't okay. quite make it. Something to strive for for the rest of the year. Yeah, super interesting list. The the funny thing, I have a, a printout here because I was going to do a quiz across sectors. But like, if you're not oil and gas, if you're not the Russian ruble, you had a terrible first half of the year. Those are basically the only things that did well. I guess the dollar still is pretty strong. Yep. I think gold's only down 1% or something like that. Everything else is down. And it just, it just ties what we talked about for a year or so where we were in an everything bubble. And I love how that phrase seems to have caught on in terms of people talk about 2022 as the popping of the everything bubble because truly everything was overvalued maybe with the exceptional oil and gas very true and what's uh what's related to something we've said a number of times here is that the everything bubble quote unquote popped and now everything is overvalued like that it's it's kind of this like we've gone back to the point where we were having conversations about how everything was overvalued is the point where everything has gone back to like it, it yeah so it just would, it was overvalued and then got like a buck wild, what the heck is going on, nonsensical. And now we're back to overvalued. Like we're back to a place where you can start to make decisions where it was just glaringly obvious before. 
I'd say, but like, it's like a market right now to a certain extent. Like there are certain companies that might be worth buying. There are certain companies that are probably too expensive. It's not like everything is just completely off the chisel. Like when you, when you ran your screen, was it a year yeah. ago maybe? And you were like, nothing's yep. coming up. There was like, like two stocks yeah. Yeah. Uh, in my deep value screen. Now there's uh, 20 or so. Now I, I'd have to do a deep dive on each of those to see if they actually uh, meet all the hurdles. Cause some of it, you can't build into a screen and you have to do it by hand. But there are some deals out there. I'll give you a couple personal examples. We don't have to go down this rabbit hole if you don't want to, but I did a portfolio review yesterday in one of my value portfolios. The portfolio average dividend yield is now 4.91%. Let's just call it 5%. Those dividends are safe, man. These aren't like these aren't high flyers where dividend cuts are coming. I have stocks that I believe are undervalued that are going to pay me an average of a 5% dividend. And I should mention that two of my largest holdings in that portfolio don't even pay a dividend. So if you take those out, I mean, you're getting to the point where there's some juicy returns and some juicy dividends available that are safe. It's pretty exciting. You might have to wait a little bit to see it, but- Oh, you will, yeah. But still, yeah, there's there's one stock I'm familiarly not allowed to own. There's one. You spill the beans on this? Yeah. It's Altria Group. I'm I'm not allowed to own it, but I was reading about it the other day. So Altria Group yeah. used to be uh, known as Philip Morris back in the day. It's one of the best yeah. performing stocks of all time, except over the last like 20 years has gotten hammered for the most part. But uh, so I was looking at it the other day, though, and that's spitting out like a 9% dividend yield or something like that right now. Yep. I was like, whoa, holy matrimony. Yeah, there's there's some stuff. I ended up, uh, as you know, I was watching a bunch of stuff over the last like couple months. I have not pulled the trigger on anything yet, but I'm still, oh, I'm still, I'm still watching. It's like, we've, we've talked about them before, so I don't need to repeat them, but some things going well, on out there. Yeah. I mean, I used to own Altria. Um, I've made nice money there before, uh, but I totally get your reservations. I'll have to look into that, but off the top of my head, so first of all, guys, research recommendations, none of this is investment advice. This is the show. We have fun talking about investments, but don't go buy this stuff, right? They Didn't they buy Juul, the vaporizer, uh, not vaporizer, but the vaping thing that the Biden administration is basically killing? So I imagine the stock, I haven't followed it, but I imagine the stock has got killed by that. Like and, yes, uh, crushed, absolutely yeah. crushed, because Juul's not a thing anymore no it's, i mean it's, it's multi-billion over. dollar write-off yeah it's, they just have to write it off um which is why you should always be concerned about seeing large amounts of goodwill on a balance sheet because it often gets written off let's just let's just do this off the cuff other stocks getting killed right now um that i personally own intel just getting crushed man the dividends up to i think about four percent now cole's acquisition fell through just getting crushed dividends at seven percent Coles, I, I did this off pod, but I'll do it here too. Current market caps like $3.7 million. They had almost $600 million in cash. They're planning to buy back $500 million of the stock, and they have a real estate portfolio valued at $8 billion. Here, here's what I want to get your take on Coles, because there's obviously risk there, but this is the type of stock that I buy. Just months ago, Dougals, the, three months ago, the stock is trading at $60 a share. It's currently tr- trading at about 29 
three months ago, they had multiple acquisition offers north of 50 bucks a share. Um, the one that they thought they were going to pursue was at 60 bucks a share and that fell through. Where, ha, how come these institutional investors that were thinking about buying the thing aren't just buying tons of shares at $29 a share? That's what I don't understand. Because if you wanted to buy 100% of the company north of 50 bucks a share, even when the market has deteriorated greatly in the past three months, maybe now you're only willing to pay 40 bucks a share for the thing. But why wouldn't you buy 20% of the company at a really depressed price? Well, Does this you, make any sense? Yeah, you'd only do that if you thought you could get the whole thing. You wouldn't do it just own part of it because, and I don't know their finances, right? But yeah. typically in these situations, to make up some numbers, you're trying to deploy X amount of capital. Like you're trying to deploy $10 billion in capital. So like if you end up deploying 900 million of it, like that's not helpful to you. It's, it's more of an opportunity cost situation. So if you're trying to just deploy 10 bill, right? Like then you need to deploy 10 bill or else you're going to have this annoying coals just sitting out like a dingleberry in your um <laughs> see with, i mean i i just don't think of it that way because i think if someone is leaving 20 dollars bills on the ground you know let's can i do my rant on the efficient market hypothesis right that means that the current price of stocks is always in the academic sense it means the current price of stock weighs in all the information and it's effectively right so it means it's really hard to beat the market because there's no mispricings. Well, in the efficient market hypothesis, my, there's the story of the economics professor and the student walking on the college campus and the student looks at the ground and says, hey, look, there's a $20 bill on the ground. And the economics professor goes, there can't be a $20 bill on the ground because that's inefficient. So someone would have already picked it up. Well, the student just reaches down and picks up the $20 bill. That's what I'm saying is happening here is the mispricing is so great based on the reaction to bad news. I don't care if I have to deploy 10 billion and this only allows me to deploy one tenth of that. If it's, I don't even want to use the term. <laughs> don't want to say free money because it's not free money because there's lots of risk associated. This is why no one listening to this should buy it. Yep. But if it's mispriced and I can deploy some capital to make a nice return, why wouldn't I do that? Then because I have nine. Because there, in some cases, there are minimum numbers of like minimum sizes of investments you have to make to even impact your portfolio. And there's opportunity costs in you deploying that. So if there's another like $10 billion investment you could make, you have to like, you need the capital for that or else yeah, you're going to have. Sure. So that, that's, that's the rationale. True. I get it for your portfolio right or like my portfolio like i, I get yeah. that but i'm on on stuff being down you know as you know that's all i got home i got mary j blige sitting on top of my portfolio singing about how she's going down um what's what i like right now about the portfolio though not the returns let's be clear but what i like right now about my portfolio is i'm at a point where there's only one stock that i hold that isn't a long-term hold or that isn't that isn't either model or long term hold. Yeah. And so I have like, you know, the 50 year mentality or whatever that's like sitting yep. on it for my whole so so like that's great. Whereas and when I say that as people that have read the post I put out know, like in 2020 to early 2021, I bought a bunch of stuff that was meant to be like a one-ish or so year hold because I saw opportunity. 
And so most of those, except for one stock are gone. So it at least lets me go like, okay, now I'm looking at a long term, a long term time horizon. Whereas those stocks, I was concerned about what they were doing actually in the near term, because the purpose was to make a profit off of them for a year. So psych- yeah. it's just psychological, yeah. like psychologically for me, it just makes a difference. It is a, it just, it's, I know we use this word a lot. It's just fun right now. Like I just, <clears throat> I think all this is fun to take a look it's at. Great. Yeah. On the topic of financial advice, fishbowl time. All right. I read an article about a paper. I have not yet read the paper, but I read an article about a paper. It's called How Susceptible Are You to Financial BS? The actual article spells out that acronym, but we got kids at home. So yeah, you specifically recently were talking about how there's like so much financial advice out there and you're like, how does this exist? Like, how is there all this financial nonsense out here that's touting itself as advice? And that's existed for a long period of time, but now it's becoming easier and easier for this stuff to spread. And people have gotten really good at like making it into entertainment, but pushing it as advice. So there's this paper that came out that's called, that this article wrote about called Individual Differences in Susceptibility to Financial BS. And what they did in the study was they created a bunch of like real financial statements. Well, that's a, that's a terrible term. I mean like financial, like, um, sentences right when i say statements right and then they created a bunch of nonsense ones like using financial jargon they just like randomly kind of put words together <laughs> to create um the to create phrases and sentences like an example of one of the fake ones would be a cheap loan is beyond all new destiny or huh? money <laughs> eases the costs of those who borrow right and so what what they were trying to do is you know how uh how some of the like the bright great investors have created these like really pithy statements. Mm-hmm. Um, so they like created some of those, but just randomly, like they just chose like financial phrases and just created randomly. So they, cre- they had some real ones and they created some fake ones. And then they put out this survey where they asked people about their financial well-being, their financial knowledge, their know-how, all that stuff. And then took that data and then put these, these phrases out to them to see what their reaction was to it. So like a real statement that they gave was when you buy a bond, you are lending a company money. So they put that out there. Like that's just legit. Yep. Yep. And then they would put something else out that says hedging means investing your money in a single stock. Right. <laughs> and they tested like, you know, true, false, kind of like agree, yep. disagree. Here, here's what they, here's a summary of what they found. Older women with lower incomes were generally like really good at sussing out the, the BS. They had, uh, they raised kids. Yeah. <laughs> so they're just like done with this. They also were not confident in their financial expertise. So when they asked the questions of like, what's your financial know-how? They'd say, I know nothing, but they were actually good at this. Levels of education had no made no difference in your ability to detect this. The biggest, what they call dupes, their words, not mine, but I'd probably use the same one for financial nonsense were young, overconfident, high income males. Of course. I mean, yeah. The, that that category we need an acronym is like they're the biggest financial suckers out there and they they generally found that people that were more insecure about their finances were the ones that were better at detection wait hold on sorry i just figured out the acronym for that group the rich males crypto bro <laughs> i was waiting sorry. for an acronym <laughs> yeah, there we go but that is, that's exactly right. 
I mean, it, it's like all of TikTok investors. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, okay, so you did a great job. I asked the question of why is there such uh, a market for this financial BS? And you just answered it. It's just uh, crypto bros on TikTok. They're, they're just, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. I thought this was interesting. It's not altogether surprising, but it's interesting. And what they what they put out, I don't know if this ends up being true or not. What they put out in the um, in the paper was they were saying that they think this is going to make this could potentially make a difference on how financial firms market to different audiences, knowing what you uh, oh yeah like react to or not. But uh, when I read the hedging one, it made me think about when we were talking about the Bitcoin as a hedge. <laughs> like I just want I wanted something to say. A hedge moves in the same direction, you know, as, as you're hedging against or whatever. I thought that I thought that was pretty interesting and really germane to what we were talking yeah, it's, about. It's great. This is from uh, evidenceinvestor.com if you guys want to check it out. Good stuff. I want to switch gears slightly and talk about Will Smith, something you never thought you'd hear on the podcast. And no, I'm not talking about beating people up on stage. According to Will Smith's biography, he states three things. Becoming famous is amazing. Being famous is a mixed bag. And losing any amount of fame is miserable. Now, why I mentioned that on an investing podcast is because Morgan Housel ties that together and says that he thinks it's the same with money. So that would mean getting rich is amazing. Being rich is a mixed bag. And losing any amount of wealth is miserable. What do you think? I think that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And you could even take it down to the micro level of, uh, of how an individual investment performs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you have, you have an individual investment. If it's taken off to the moon, like it's exhilarating, like absolutely exhilarating. When it's up at like a high price, but kind of staying there, you like that you've made a bunch of money on it but you're scared. Of yeah. What, of oh, I'm, I'm always scared. If I make like seven cents, I'm terrified <laughs> that the, the, the thing's overvalued now. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's not in the garbage anymore. What, what, I don't know what to do mm-hmm. with it. And then the, the other part is, is kind of is interesting here with the last part. Cause I generally would say it's the same where if it loses any amount of money, then that, you know, feels bad. But sometimes when it's talking personally for me, when it's something I know I'm holding for a long time, I kind of also get a little bit excited. I don't get excited if it goes like all the way back down to what I bought it for, right? But when, when, there, when it's something that I feel like I'm going to accumulate over a long period of time and it drops by 20% and I still believe in the company and can pick up some more, yeah. I, I, feel, I feel okay with it. That's, that's not most of the stocks that I own, just to be clear. But they're like, because there's only a few that I have like long, long, long term uh, horizons on it but yeah i think it's good per usual morgan's just ahead of the game the uh, brilliant insight here and uh, it's so true for that so i want to keep going i have um, one more quick hit for you have you ever heard of coin flex no why would i M- me neither but apparently it's a crypto exchange that uh paused withdrawals this week do you know their solution to trying to allow people to withdraw their money i can't i just can't they're issuing a new token that <laughs> pays a 20 percent apr hold Jiggles, on. this is yeah go, hold go. on hold on hold on so let me just analogize this for a second so i'm a bank 
and I say, okay, no one can take any money out of their accounts. That's right. Wait, but you're expected to be able to take money out of your account. But we're opening up this new kind of account that you can put more money into. <laughs> and if we get enough money in that new account, we might be able to give the other people their money back from their original account. And I promise you, none of that money is coming from the new accounts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it. <laughs> and your money is safe here. This is there anything more obvious to stay away from? It's a Ponzi scheme, as is you, you called this out. You know, I pushed back. I've been more open to crypto than you. When you literally six, nine months ago walked us through an article that said crypto is a Ponzi scheme. I still am not ready to call all of it a positive scheme, but a lot of these exchanges that have either gone bankrupt, pause withdrawals, whatever else, seem to be proving your point. And it's mostly, to be fair, it's not like the underlying currencies are inherently a Ponzi scheme. It's that they are ripe for pon for Ponzinus. <laughs> Ponzinus. <laughs> yeah. One more thing on crypto, and then we'll go back to your fishbowl. I have to read this treat, this tweet. It's from Packy McCormick this week. And he says, the year is 2140. There are 21 million Bitcoin. Michael Saylor owns all of them. Michael Saylor is now immortal. MicroStrategy has long since folded. His Bitcoin are worth $13.93, but they are his. He is happy. He will be happy forever. There are only 21 million Bitcoin. My my favorite thing about this is that it's 120 years from now. <laughs> and he's still alive. <laughs> yeah. It's hundred like it's taken 120 years. <laughs> for this my favorite thing about this is that it's worth $13.93. <laughs> oh my goodness. We we have too much fun with this stuff. Way too much fun. For I mean, and for those who don't have any background, Michael Saylor owns a analytics firm. He's taken on billions of dollars worth of debt to buy Bitcoin. He has told people for years to mortgage their house to buy Bitcoin. Whether that turns out to be good advice 120 years from now, I don't know and I don't care. But um, he bought more Bitcoin this week, Douglas. I mean, he's just up to his eyeballs in debt, but he's going he's gonna to ride the ship all the way to the ground. No yeah. doubt about it. Yeah. And these stories are far from over, but it is enjoyable. It, and this, this is not enjoyable because of anyone's pain. It's just from a like narrative arc perspective. It's enjoyable to think back to some of the more in-depth conversations that we had about some of the stuff that are happening, like SPACs. And like yeah. we, back in, was it last fall? When we were, we were looking at MicroStrategy, which is the analytics firm that Michael Saylor runs, we were looking at their 10K or 10Q, mm -hmm. I can't remember which, whether it was the yeah. end of the year or quarter. And like looking at the number of times that he mentioned Bitcoin or cryptocurrency versus analytics and stuff like that. Like, and now seeing- Wasn't it like 700, like Bitcoin 700 times? It was like analytics it was, 15. Yeah, it, it was just, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. All right, I have one more item in my fishbowl. This is about Atlassian. Atlassian is an Australian company. It's an enterprise software company. Uh, creates products like Jira, Confluence, and a whole bunch of other ones that allow collaboration in the workplace. And I have actually like liked Atlassian for a long time um, as a as a company, and even 
I'll say as a potential investment and, but I've never got into it because it's always felt too expensive to me, but like, I've liked the prospect of it. And what I, what I want to talk about here is like, not even it's about Atlassian, like everything is fully about Atlassian, but it's just this, this type of arc I think is really interesting. So a few, a few facts here. Atlassian is about 20 years old, unprofitable. And the, the, um, so it's founded in the early 2000s, went public in, in 2015. It's trading at roughly 50 billion or so right now, which is about over 10x its value when it went public, almost 20 times sales, et cetera, et cetera. Has it ever made money? So here's what's, I don't believe it's ever bottom line made money. Okay. But what the most interesting part is during its pre-public time, it was growing insanely fast. And it was growing through like word of mouth popularity, right? So marketing spend didn't really need to occur. And so it's kind of one of those like, um, and I wouldn't, I don't know the books right back then because they didn't, didn't have to expose it, but the, at least the perception and what I think was kind of the reality was that it was intentionally growing unprofitably, right? Which is like the best place to be. Like you, you could become profitable if you want to, kind of like Amazon was for a long period of time when they were public, like you could, but they were choosing to reinvest in products. They were choosing, but if they just stopped. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. But now that's not the case. Like, so now they are spending a lot of money on marketing. Now they are not growing. Like their, their growth is slowing and it's non-profitable growth. And so it's, it's kind of like switched and going back to the... Um, the profitable growth from before Atlassian didn't raise a bunch of venture capital when they were small. Like mm-hmm. they only raised outside money a couple years, I think before they ended up going public. And so it was like that really late, you know, stage investment in there. And so the founders still own a bunch of the company. Like it's, and I really liked this quote that came, there was this piece in um, at smartcompany.com.au Cause they're an Australian company. Uh, Atlassian is 20 years old and unprofitable. The market has its valuation all wrong. This quote from this article I liked, it says, Atlassian has somehow become the Benjamin Button of the tech sector, profitable as a startup and loss-making as it has matured. And for those that have not read or seen the curious case of Benjamin Button, yeah. Benjamin Button was, a, was an old man as a baby and became a baby as an old man. I promise you it's better than that. But that's that is the premise. Of the, <laughs> that's the premise of the story. Um, it's really kind of fascinating because uh, this was, as I mentioned, it's like a company. So their uh, ticker is Team. Their collaboration company. Their ticker is T E A M. Yeah. I've been watching them basically since they went public because I just think it's like a fascinating company. But they've always they've grown their stock price has grown so fast. I mean, they've gotten cut more than in half since all this stuff started going down, and they're still like ten x what they were when they, when they went public. Yeah. I'm pulling up some financials here. You know me. I just, I hate, I hate so many things about this company <laughs> uh, from, from an investment perspective. Okay. Let me clarify. Yeah. One, I think you said 20 times sales. So a price to sales ratio more than 10 is basically impossible to ever make money. You're a double that. Uh, two, you mentioned, currently not profitable maybe they were profitable long long ago uh, i'm trying to pull some of that up three anytime i have to work in jira that means i have to deal with the technology team on some massive wasted project uh, i mean come on 
Mon- I see some of their competitors here, monday.com, Basecamp. Th- those I like better tools in my personal experience because that means I don't have to deal with the technology department. Man. All right, so here we go. At least in the f- past four years, I haven't made any money. Revenue, $2.6 billion. I won't do this on the pod. It's an interesting one. I, I think I'm the wrong person to talk about this, Dougals, because to me, it's just just stay away like i I just don't like anything i hear in this story yeah no it's fine it's absolutely fine because what was what was most interesting to me is that i've known about atlassian since the 2000s and so most of their pre-public story like the story the narrative that i told myself right about atlassian before they went public was this they were growing on their own didn't have to raise money um, could be profitable whenever they wanted to. It was all word of mouth. And then they go public. And in my head, I'm like, that's a, that is the type of company that can be around for the long term. Right. And I look at how their, their, their audience growth is. And now that they've been public for seven years, it seems like they've now become a company that I actually wasn't interested in. <laughs> you know, like if, if, the, yeah. if this were the company when they were public, like if, or sorry, when they were private, if Atlassian from the beginning had to raise money every 18 months, every two years, right? And was an enterprise software company that made Jira, Confluence, et cetera, I never would have been interested in them. Yep. And so it's kind of flipped, like reading this article, because I haven't, when I say I've been watching them for a while, I've basically been watching the stock price. I haven't been reading 10Ks or anything. Um, and reading this article makes me go, oh, actually, like maybe they're coming off my watch list. Like it, it's... It, they're like, they're not the company that I remember them being. They seem to have lost their way. I'm looking at, uh, I mean, I just hate everything about it. You have share dilution. Revenue is up nicely. It looks like they might actually have some free cash flow, which is interesting. But their debt to equity ratio is above four. I mean, remember I gave my example two weeks back? They have and, way and too not, much debt. And not for a capital. They're not like a capital intensive business. Right. It's no, not they like shouldn't is, be, right? Yeah. Yeah. So and they just even, took out a whole bunch of cheap debt. Yeah. I mean, I talked about uh, current ratios, current assets over current liabilities. They have more current liabilities than they have current assets. They have a bunch of goodwill on the balance sheet. Uh, not for me, man. Yeah. It was disappointing. Reading this article is disappointing to me. <laughs> Here's some high level stats <laughs> current PE negative. 69.4 forward p 128 <laughs> hold on <laughs> what that's not good in either direction <laughs> no no it's it's all bad all the time i'll stop uh, i'm sure this is uh, that's just not the, the type of stock for me so can we wrap up with maybe two more things in the fishbowl uh, y- yes but hold on i <laughs> just just <laughs> the, those the two things you just named so the narrative there is you're losing so much money right now that your your PE is like aggressively negative and you're projected to make money in the future. That's great. But you're projected to make so little money in the future <laughs> that your PE is aggressively positive. Like, yeah, I mean, wait, listen, if your price to sales is 20, <laughs> then your PE is going to be in the range of 100. This makes perfect sense to me. Assuming you could actually have positive earnings, which, yeah, so... Yeah. All right. So that was not, not for you. I get it. And no longer for me, I think as well. 
right, go to your fishbowl. All right. Columbia University has me upset. Six months back, we talked about the Columbia math professor who did a takedown of his own university, which is still the most amazing thing that's happened. He wrote like a 20-page breakdown of how all the stats that I submitted the U.S. World News and Report for the rankings appeared to be inflated on the positive side, which is how Columbia went from a university ranked in the 20s in that ranking system to the number two ranked university in the world. For those who don't know, I'd be happy to provide the tangent around the U.S. World News and Report ranking system and how flawed it is to start with and how it's basically about repetition. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy of who has the biggest endowment and who has the best reputation. So it's crap anyway. But what Columbia's administrators did this time around is not provide the correct numbers because if they did that, they would have gone to number two, probably, I'm sure they know in-house, they probably would have gone from number two to number 30, right? So you wouldn't want to do that. What they chose to do, and even the New York Times seems to kind of be laughing at this in the article I read, is they just aren't going to participate in the U.S. World News and Report rankings this year. And they're going to see what things look like in future years. There's there's a way that you can uh, try and spin this to make it like you're taking the high road. After reflection, we disagree with the way in which the U.S. News and World Report like calculates their rankings. And so we refuse to participate until there is justice brought to the rankings. <laughs> when the reality is what you stated, we about to go from number two to number 30. <laughs> and we don't want, we don't want that to show up. Yeah. And this professor even did a high level breakdown of how beneficial that's been to increases in tuition, enrollment, everything else. Columbia is a fine university, I'm sure. Whether it's the 100th best university in the world or the second, I don't really care. It's a great place. There's lots of great universities. The ranking system has me fired up because it's just complete garbage. But this reaction is also bordering on complete garbage. Like you cheated the system. And now if you come clean, it makes you look bad. So you're just going to with hold information i mean it doesn't seem right i i applaud that and agree that the uh the math professor breakdown was pure gold so good it was so good back in the day cool anything else in your fishbowl that is it for me well here's a here's a couple things one we have had the conversation and we know this is a holiday weekend coming out on the fourth so happy fourth of july we've had the conversation that a lot of podcasts Uh, take those times off we're intentionally trying to provide good content on the fourth so if you have some downtime need to get away from the family or whatever you have something good to listen to if you appreciate that approach shoot us a review or even an email that just says thanks guys that'd be meaningful Um, if you want to become a premium subscriber hit up supercast.skippydougals.com and you can support the show there hope all is well and enjoy the holiday peace thank you